I mentioned to Joel today I'll be preaching to many empty seats, and I'm sure by the end of the sermon all the seats will repent. <laughs> you know, Flag Day, I was just sitting there thinking, let me give you some interesting facts about the Pledge of Allegiance. Pledge of Allegiance was originally written uh, by a man named Bellamy, I forget the date, but sometime around 1900, composed for a boys' club. And originally, it did not say the United States of America. The uh, Pledge of Allegiance was originally, I pledge allegiance to the flag and to the republic for which it stands, and so on. And uh, the way the, the NEA, sometime before 1930, I forget the date, decreed that every morning the Pledge of Allegiance should be recited in the public schools. Prior to that time, it wasn't. And the way you saluted the flag until early 1930s was like this. I pledge allegiance and then to the flag of, and so on. But in the early 1930s, after the rise of Hitler, because that was too much like Heil Hitler, this part was discontinued. And there was also a very strict rule that if you had on a hat, you remove the hat and you touch, make sure your hat touch your left shoulder so your hand would be over your heart. Then uh, in 1954, as I recall, I think that's the year, uh, President Eisenhower, because of the rise of atheistic communism, thought we needed to emphasize the theistic life of America. And so that's when it was added under God. So isn't that interesting, uh, history of the, of the flag? Can you turn off the recorder for a moment? What I now want. Christians in America are intensely, many at least, looking at the Supreme Court because a decision is going to be coming down in the month of June that many say is as significant as the January 22nd, 1972. Roe versus Wade decision. The thing that the Supreme Court is considering is this. Do individual states have the right under the Constitution to pass a law defining marriage as being between one man and one woman? Do they have the right to say that same-sex marriage will not be allowed in that state. And if they do pass such laws and are, they are considered constitutional, do they have to recognize same-sex marriage that happens in other states? In other words, do individual states under the Constitution have the right to pass laws defining marriage in any way at all? Now, there are four cases that were presented to the Supreme Court and they were coalesced into a single case that goes under the name of Obergefell versus Hodges. The hearing took place April 26th. And as you read the minutes of that hearing and what this lawyer said and this lawyer said and the questions this justice asked and the questions that justice asked, it's a little bit difficult to know exactly how this thing is going to turn out. 
Of course, we know for certain how some judges will rule. For instance, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, on the 7th of May, officiated at a same-sex marriage between two men, one government, one uh, financier, I think it was. And according to the New York Times, and this is what the New York Times said, with a sly look upon her face, emphasizing the word constitution, she said, I'm doing this because I have the authority of the Constitution to do so. And then there was a great celebration. It was not the first time she had officiated at a same-sex wedding, but this one, a big deal, was made of it because of the hearing. Major Christian ministries came together and wrote a letter to the Supreme Court. And that letter said this, If you rule that states cannot bar same-sex marriage, the wrath of God is going to fall on this nation. A prayer vigil has been held outside the Supreme Court ever since that hearing. But of course, neither the letter from Christian ministries nor the prayer vigil will have any influence on the Supreme Court unless, of course, God sovereignly does something in response to those prayers. This month, Oklahoma first and then followed by Texas, both passed bills that said clergymen cannot be forced to do something that violates their religious convictions or their conscience. And if you look on the internet, there are all kinds of things that that stirred up. For instance, if a clergyman refuses to officiate at a same-sex wedding regardless of what the law is, and we're going to challenge that in court, that church should lose its tax exemption. So who knows where this thing is going? What do we do when we consider the law of the land and the law of the land might violate our Christian convictions. And so this morning we want to talk about the Christian, his relationship to law, and how much authority does that law really have. Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 13, Let every person be subject to the ruling authority, for there is no authority but God and those authorities that do exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority opposes an or the ordinance of God, and those that oppose will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but of evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Then do what is right, and you will have praise of the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, because he does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God an avenger 
who brings wrath upon those who practice evil. Wherefore, be in subjection, not just because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. Peter wrote almost the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 2. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so in that thing in which they slander you as evildoers, on account of, they may on account of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves for Christ's sake to every ordinance of man, whether to a king who is the authority or to governors sent by him to punish evildoers and give praise to those who do right, for such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. And then remember Paul wrote to Timothy, first of all I urge that prayers and supplications be made for all men, especially for kings and governors and those in authority, that we might lead quiet and peaceable lives. Doesn't seem to be much equivocation there, does it? <laughs> There's not much equivocation. If you oppose the ordinance of God, you will receive recompense. And in the Greek, that is not subjunctive mood, it is indicative. You will, not shall, but will. It is certain and definite. Authority, very important in the kingdom of God. It's interesting to me that when Jesus was being tried before Pilate, here's the Son of God, the God-man, standing before Pilate, who a few hours before had said to Peter, as Peter drew out his sword, Put up your sword, Peter. If I wanted to, I could call 10,000 angels. Yet that one who had the authority to call 10,000 angels stood before a Roman governor and spoke respectfully to him. At one point where Pilate was talking and Jesus wasn't answering, Pilate said, don't you speak to me? Why don't you speak to me? Don't you know I have the authority to crucify you? Jesus said you would have no authority except that it were given you from above. Jesus respected the authority of Pilate because the authority Pilate had, as with all authority, had been given from above. In Acts 23, we see the case of the Apostle Paul after he had been arrested, he was brought into a council of Jewish leaders. And in that group, there was the high priest. Paul didn't know he was the high priest. And Paul began speaking, saying, You know, from my childhood, I've kept all the laws. I've lived a blameless life. And the high priest said, Somebody hit him, and somebody smacked Paul. Paul said, You whited sepulcher, God will smite you because you've had me smitten in opposition to the law. Everyone said, Paul, how dare you speak that way to God's high priest? 
Paul said, I didn't know he was the high priest. Because it is written in the book of Exodus, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. Respect for authority over and over and over again. We see that lesson taught in the word of God. He who resists authority, Paul wrote, opposes the ordinance of God. And those who oppose will receive condemnation upon themselves. Authority. Authority even has a place in the church, the kingdom of God. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Submit yourself to those who have rule over you. And by the way, the Greek word translated submit, it's the word that if you're in a wrestling match and you're losing and you're finally whipped and you say, I give up, I yield, you win. That's the word. So church members, if you're wrestling with the elders, God says, give up and say you win. That's the word. But isn't it sad, and we have to take a rabbit trail here, that we have seen authority in the church abused. Some of us who were around in the early days of the charismatic movement, the Jesus movement, remember all of the various cults that arose in which abuse of authority was the outstanding characteristic of that cult. And women were told, the Bible says wives were to be in subjection to their husband, and so some women even did things they knew were sinful because God said they had to be in subjection to their husband. Some of us know of a particular meeting in which one of the leaders got up and said, we're the generals, you're the troops, we own your houses, we own your bank accounts. If somebody comes to town and we need a place for them to stay, we don't ask you, we tell you we're sending them over. If we need $25, we don't ask you, we tell you to write the check. Abuse of authority, sad to say, it so happened in the kingdom of God. You know, in that passage in Ephesians about husbands and wives, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, and then wives, <laughs> obey your husbands as the church obeys Christ. Sad to say, too many wives hear what God said to the husband. God said, you have to love me. And too many husbands say, God said, you have to obey me. You know what I wish? I wish some way, any time that those verses are read. We could have two rooms with a soundproof wall between them. And the women in one room and the men in the other room. And in this room, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. On this one, wives, submit yourselves to the husband as the church submits to Christ. And they could not hear what the other one said. That's a rabbit trail. But the rabbit trail is this. It is sad to see that we have seen authority abused, haven't we? And in that passage where it tells church members to submit to the elders, it says, as those who will give answer to God. I would hate to be an elder standing in the judgment day who has abused the authority that God has given him in the kingdom.
God's going to get him. <laughs> but what do we do if authority and the law of the land command us to do something that violates the law of God? Here we must remember one of the foundational principles of hermeneutics is this. Every verse of Scripture must be interpreted in the light of all Scripture. And as we do that, the apostles help us find the answer to our question. Not sure when, maybe the very next day after Pentecost, but at least a few days after Pentecost, not more than that. Peter and John went up to the temple at the hour of prayer to pray. And as they came to the temple, there was a lame man there, a beggar who had his hand out or pot or bucket or something, asking people for alms. This man was well known. Everyone knew he was a cripple. He had always been there at the gate, beautiful. But as Peter and John came to this man, Peter looked at him and said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. Stand up and walk. And this man, who was a well-known cripple, rose up and began leaping and praising God. And everybody in the temple court, they got enthusiastic and I suppose joined in. And Peter then was able to preach the gospel. Now, of course, this caused problems for the Jewish leaders and so they sent some soldiers out to arrest, but they said, we have to be careful. These people are so excited. A notable miracle has taken place. If they see we're harming Peter and John, they'll stone us. <laughs> so they had to carefully take them in to be examined by the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin did example, examine them and said, you know, we really can't do much. The crowd will get us. Well, let me tell you, you guys, don't you do this anymore. <laughs> don't do any more miracles in Jesus' name. Don't preach his name. We forbid you to do so. Well, they went out and preached some more. <laughs> and a day or so later as they were preaching and the crowd again was stirred by the power of the gospel this time, soldiers again were sent and they arrested them and the soldiers again were careful how they did it, and they took him again before the center. We told you not to do this anymore. They said, well, whether it's right to obey God or man, judge you, but we can only speak those things that we've seen and heard. They put them out of the room. What are we going to do with these guys? Gamaliel, who was the rabbi that taught Paul, Paul as yet has not come on the scene in the book of Acts, said, you know, we need to be careful. It's possible God is in this, and we might be, uh, you know, risking making God mad. So they took his advice and brought him back in and had him whip 39 lashes each and said, now don't you do anything else in the name of Jesus. Get out of here and shut up. The apostles left and glorified God that they had been privileged to suffer in his name. And they went on preaching and the church grew and grew and grew. Here was an instance in which the authorities said, don't 
do it. But they knew God had said, do it. But I want you to notice how they conducted themselves, how the apostles conducted themselves before these Jewish authorities. There was nothing disrespectful. They did not rail against them. They respectfully apply, uh, replied and accepted the consequences. What an example. Isn't that something? You want to beat me? Go ahead. Stick me in jail. That's fine. You're the authorities. You can do what you want. They didn't get a bunch of folks with placards and start a protest. They could have done that because everybody was so excited about the miracle and all they had seen. These men could have rallied a bunch of Jews that had put the Sanhedrin to flight. But they didn't do it. They respectfully accepted the consequences of disobedience because they knew they should obey God and not man. In a way, the example had been set for them by Daniel, hadn't it? You remember in Daniel 3, when the image of Nebuchadnezzar had been set up and at the sound of all these instruments, you know, it, it, it listens all of them and one's called a sackbut. What's a sackbut? Well, a sackbut's an ancient trombone, but anyway, they blew all these horns and everybody was to bow down and worship this idol, but Daniel's companions, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, wouldn't do it, and so they got arrested, and you know the story. <laughs> they were brought to the fiery furnace. The furnace was made hotter than ever, so hot that the men that were fueling the furnace <laughs> fell back, and three Hebrew young men said, you know, our God can deliver us. And here is probably the most important thing they said. But if not. <laughs> but if not. We still will worship only the true God. Here's another rabbit trail. In World War II, when the British soldiers had been pushed back by the Germans till they were on the shores of Dunkirk, and behind them was the English Channel, and before him came the German onslaught, and it looked as if there was no hope. And they sent a telegram back home to be, and it was published in the paper and broadcast on the radio, and that telegram had only three words, but if not, every Englishman and every English woman, so we get both male and female in here, in school had had the Bible as a part of their instruction. And they all knew Daniel, and they understood what those three words meant. But if not. An armada of vessels of every kind left England and crossed that channel. Fishermen in their little boats, barges, not the British Navy. <laughs> And they saved the soldiers from Dunkirk. Well, that's just another rabbit trail. But if not, the three Hebrew young men said, we go to the furnace. But if not, and you notice, you don't see any disrespect in their words toward Nebuchadnezzar. Later, in Daniel chapter 6, you remember, when Darius now was the king, and some of his 
courtiers had persuaded him to say that for the next 30 days, anybody who prays to anyone but you will put in the lion's den because they knew that Daniel several times a day went to the window and prayed facing Jerusalem, prayed to Jehovah, the only God. And Daniel didn't stop. And he ended up in the lion's den. <laughs> of course, God stopped the mouth of the lion. But he wasn't disrespectful. I will obey God, only God. And what happens to me happens. That was his attitude. In the early days of the church, if you read of the various Roman emperors, there came a point where the term Augustus was applied to the Roman emperor. That meant divinity. And after that, the Roman emperors expected to be worshipped. And so early in the history of the church, here's the scenario that would take place. A group of Roman soldiers would come to a village. And they would gather everyone in the village. And they would say, everyone here must worship the emperor. And how you signify that is by taking a goblet of wine and pouring it out as an act of worship to the emperor. Everyone in the village do this. Christians faced, what will we do? Everyone who poured out a goblet of wine as an act of worship unto the emperor was given a document called a libellus. Those who didn't have a libellus could no longer do business. They usually were beaten and they were imprisoned. Christians suffered because they would not receive libellus. However, some did. Some came. And then when Constantine put forth the Edict of Toleration in 313 A.D., those who had accepted the libellus came to be known as the Lapsi. <laughs> and the Lapsi said, we want back in the church. And some of the church fathers said, look, I've got scars all over my body because I wouldn't do that. And a controversy arose. Some said, well, God forgives, we should receive him. Some said they shouldn't. But the point is this. Persecution seems to have always been part of the lot of those who are faithful to God. Paul wrote to Timothy, all those that will suffer, rather live godly lives in Christ Jesus, must suffer persecution. So what are we to do? Well, let me say this. We don't live in the Roman Empire. <laughs> we live in a country where we have a vote. We should not vote for someone because they are Democrat or Republican. But we should seek God because a vote, the nature of what we have in America, that's a sacred act because it has to do with the direction and destiny of our nation. We should go to that voting booth 
after and while <laughs> praying. Who is the man or woman, or what is the issue upon which we're voting, that which will promote the will of God? And sometimes we have to vote for somebody in a party that is not our party because this is the one who seems to have more of the heart of God in this election. But perhaps most importantly is what we see in Acts chapter 4. When Peter and John were released after their first imprisonment, they went to where a group of Christians were meeting. And when they walked in, the Christians were so excited and they began to pray and praise God. And they said this, they prayed this, Oh Lord, give us the ability to speak with confidence. And as we do so, you do works through your Holy Spirit, miracles and wonders. And the house was shaken. And then they went out and preached with boldness. Whatever comes down the pike out of this Supreme Court ruling, let us fervently pray that God would shake the house, <laughs> that God would begin to move in signs and wonders. And as the Holy Spirit fills us, we will be bold regardless of whether the law says so or not, but we will do so always respectful of authority and accept whatever consequences there might be. God in heaven, we pray right now for the Supreme Court and whatever machinations the devil might have in mind. We pray, O oh God, that at the end of June, after this ruling has been given, he'll be angry because he has been defeated and righteousness is won. But whatever, and Lord, we know this is a dangerous message that we have brought this morning, whatever, O oh God, by your Spirit, lead us. Strengthen us that always, regardless of what the price might be, we will be faithful to you. Through Jesus, amen.